Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm Seth Cropsey, Senior Fellow here at Hudson, also Director of Hudson Center for American Sea Power. Uh, welcome to Hudson Institute's discussion on religious freedom in China, with particular emphasis on the recent agreement to upgrade relation between uh, the Vatican and the People's Republic of China. Uh, I'd like to begin by uh, by setting the the um, the diplomatic change that this portends in uh, a broad context. Uh, I have the honor to be uh, preceded uh, in this specific. Uh, by Vice President Pence, who spoke admirably and at length from this podium last week, although there was a different thing on the uh, symbol on the front of the podium, uh, about U.S. relations with China. Vice President discussed the history of U.S. relations with China, noting the United States' support for China's membership in the World Trade Organization in 2001. In the same year, the U.S. also granted China permanent, permanent most favored nation trade status. In the Obama administration, China accepted a U.S. invitation to participate in the large annual multilateral naval exercise that the United States conducts in the Pacific. These and a host of other conciliatory gestures and actions were part of and consistent with U.S. policy going back four decades. The policy aimed by economic, diplomatic, and military measures to encourage China to become a responsible stakeholder, that was the term that was used, in global affairs. There was a time when reasonable arguments for this policy could be made. Deng Xiaoping, a maximum leader of China in the early years following Mao's death followed a policy of what was called then reform and opening. But those who came after Deng, especially Xi Jinping, along with his predecessors, um, did not. So China's rulers modified everything from economics to globalization to uh, international law um, using the label with Chinese characteristics. Rather than move China toward our hopes of its participation in the international order, Chinese characteristics separated the PRC from global usage, tradition, and law. Four decades of American efforts to include China in the international order proved futile. From China's mercantilist trade policies, to its theft of intellectual property, to its efforts to intimidate and isolate democratic Taiwan, to its illegal effort to assert sovereignty over international waters, to its militarization of reefs and rock outcroppings in the same waters, to its large military armament aimed uh, significantly at separating the United States from its democratic partners and allies in East Asia. China has demonstrated its contempt for the standards and agreements of the international community. A better example of China's contempt for these customs and laws 
then the PRC's suppression of its subject's religion does not exist. The PRC has shut down churches for operating without a license. The Associated Press reported last month that China official, Chinese officials have persecuted Christian churches in and beyond Beijing, that it has destroyed crosses, burned Bibles, and ordered congregations to renounce their faith. This violates the guarantee of religious freedom expressed in China's 1982 constitution. Xi Jinping is using the position he sought as China's most powerful ruler since Mao to obliterate anything he regards as a threat to his rule over China's Communist Party, and thus, as he sees it, China. China itself. He understands that God is a higher authority than any human institution, especially an institution that stands on the unprincipled strictures of a corrupt and immoral government. You will hear more about this from some of our panelists today. Thus, persecution and continued or, accel or accelerated government persecution overshadow the prospects for religious tolerance in China today. This is the unhappy situation against which the Vatican's agreement to recognize Catholic bishops appointed by Chinese authorities in exchange for Beijing's recognition of the Pope as leader of the Catholic Church is taking place. There is also a broader diplomatic issue whose ramifications affect Taiwan's international standing and thus engage the security interests of the United States. Since Dr. Since Taiwan's Dr. Tsai Ing-wen became president two and a half years ago, China has sought relentlessly to isolate Taiwan diplomatically. In a little over a year, by bribery and arm twisting, uh, China has caused Burkina Faso, El Salvador, and most recently the Dominican Republic to break relations with Taiwan. It is inconceivable that Beijing does not aim for a similar outcome in their policy toward the Vatican. Notwithstanding, religious freedom is guaranteed in Taiwan's constitution and exercised by its people. The disparity between communist China and free Taiwan's policy toward men and women of faith could not possibly be greater. This contrast raises vividly the questions that concern us here today. As best as we know, what are the details of the agreement between the Vatican and China? Can the agreement increase religious freedom in China, and if so, how? What does each party seek to gain? Can we tell anything about the future of Vatican-China relations from the Cold War experience of Soviet relations with the church? How, if at all, will the Vatican's actions today affect other religious groups in China as well as beyond in other authoritarian governments? So with us today to discuss these and related questions, uh, I am proud to say, are Dr. Daniel Mark, who is professor of political science at Villanova University, 
um, the gentleman over there, uh, where he teaches political theory and politics and law. Dr. Mark served for four years on the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, including as chairman. He is a much sought after speaker and has addressed the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, uh, Notre Dame, Brigham Young University. He works with the Tikva Fund in New York and is battalion professor at the Villanova Reserve, Naval Reserve Officers Training Corps unit. He is a widely published author on international religious freedom, and Hudson is delighted that he can join us for this afternoon's discussion. Uh, Mr. Ted Lippian, next, is here from San Francisco. He was chief of the Polish language service of the Voice of America when the Solidarity Movement was transforming Poland in the 1980s, and later was instrumental in placing VOA programs in Bosnia, Russia, and Central Asia. As co-founder of Free Media Online and the Committee for U.S. International Broadcasting, Mr. Lippian has continued his active participation in public diplomacy. He has been published in the Washington Post, the New York Times, and appeared on Fox and NPR and other media. He uh, also uh, interviewed Cardinal Wojtyla two years before his election as Pope. Uh, Mr. Lippian will examine how the Catholic Church operated uh, during the Cold War. Finally, uh, in the cleanup position here, uh, Hudson Senior Fellow Nina Shea has been an international human rights lawyer for more than 30 years. She is director of Hudson Center for Religious Freedom and is deeply involved in those elements of U.S. foreign policy that advance individual religious freedom and human rights against the tide of Islamic extremism, as well as nationalist and the world's remaining communist regimes, nationalism. Appointed by Congress seven times to serve on the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, Ms. Shea's uh, appearance before the United Nation uh, on be she appeared before the United Nation um, on behalf of uh, the Soviet Nobel laureate Andrei Sakharov. Uh, Ms. Shea and Dr. Mark will look in detail at the warming relationship between the Vatican and China, and we will. Uh, take a step aside from our usual forum uh, here so that after the presentations of uh, Dr. Mark and Mr. Lippian, um, I will ask uh, Nina some questions and we'll engage in a discussion that I hope will lead to uh, a question period with the audience. And with that, let me turn the podium or the chair as he chooses uh, over to Daniel. <coughs> Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's a delight to be here. Uh, as you heard, I'm Daniel Mark, uh, teacher of Villanova, and uh, served uh, on the US Commission on International Religious Freedom. It's a delight to be uh, on a panel again with Nina Shea, uh, fellow former commissioner, 
Um, and thank you especially to uh, Seth Cropsey and everyone uh, at the Hudson Institute for inviting me and ar arranging this important event. Um, by way of background uh, to my remarks about uh, China and the Vatican and the New Deal, such as it is, um, I want to start by saying uh, that I speak as a friend and supporter of the Catholic Church. I'm obviously not Catholic. Uh, I do teach at a Catholic university and spent last year visiting at another Catholic university. Um, and certainly uh, my friends know that the Catholic Church um, has a dear place in my heart. Um, and so the criticisms that I have, and I will be critical, um, really do come from a place of, uh, uh, of hopefulness about um, the possibilities for the church when the church is uh, well engaged in the world. I think that the church's moral witness in the world uh, is so important in general. Um, and I think that the church's historical witness against communism uh, is so important in particular. And so I think it's also great uh, that we have uh, Mr. Ted Lippian, who I've just met here as well, who I'm sure can speak to that um, with far uh, greater knowledge uh, and insight than I. Um, but certainly that is a premise uh, that I'm taking and that for the church's moral witness or the church's moral witness about communism in particular to be lost um, would be a, a grave loss um, for the globe. Um, church, the church, uh, the Catholic Church has one of uh, the best documents ever composed on religious freedom in the church decla declaration that came out of the Second Vatican Council, Dignitatis Humanae. Um, it's something I read and teach often um, in teaching about uh, religious freedom uh, to college students and others throughout the year. Uh, and I think that in our age, uh, having been engaged in the work of international religious freedom closely, that the church's witness for international religious freedom uh, is as important as ever, if not more important uh, than ever, and including, or maybe we might say with recent news, especially in China. So that's my preface. <clears throat> as a brief overview of the deal, the deal uh, whose contents no one, it seems, actually knows outside of a, a small circle at the Vatican, um, uh, the deal comes to us in, in the context of a long-running conflict uh, between China and the church. I suspect that many of the people uh, in this room are aware of this, and that's perhaps uh, why you're interested in being here today. Um, for a long time, the Vatican uh, has not recognized uh, bishops that have been named essentially by the Chinese uh, communist government, government-appointed bishops. Uh, by fact of being appointed illicitly, they are automatically excommunicated. Um, uh, and, and on the other side, um, China has refused to accept Vatican-appointed bishops, that is to say bishops and priests and really anybody uh, Catholic in China who exists outside of the Chinese Patriotic Catholic Association or Catholic Patriotic Association, depending on which uh, translation you go with. And that's why you end up with uh, the official recognized church in the Patriotic Association and then the underground church. And of course, that's not true in, in China for Catholics alone. There are official, and many other countries, there are especially communist countries, officially recognized uh, churches and then the unrecognized underground ones. And so this deal uh, coming in that context was a hope um, to, uh, in the hope of resolving um, this, this conflict, uh, this dispute, this division. Um, so it depends who you ask, uh, but the deal is supposed to, one way or another, uh, 
uh, allow the church um, or on the church's side to agree to recognize uh, the bishops that have been illicitly appointed by the Chinese government, thereby ending their excommunication, allowing them to function licitly as bishops in the Catholic Church. Um, and on the other hand, uh, give the church some role in, uh, in saying who the next bishops, uh, future bishops uh, are. I say some role uh, because the conventional wisdom that's been going around in media accounts is that the church uh, is to have a veto, um, that uh, the Chinese government, I guess, will have its slate of potential bishops, and then the, China, and then the, the pope can say yay or nay uh, on, on the people um, who are chosen. Um, Nina Shea pointed out to me on our way in that uh, in America Magazine, uh, the Pope has been quoted saying that he does the nominating. Uh, maybe that puts him in a stronger position and the Chinese government gets a yay or nay. Uh, the New York Times, in the September 24th article on this same subject, was very careful to say um, that the deal means that the church will have a say. Uh, in the appointment of bishops. And I'm sure that was uh, very carefully ambiguous because we don't really know uh, what the deal says. Uh, but it's interesting that there's kind of a whole range of possibilities um, about what, um, what the church is actually getting out of this in terms of uh, its authority over who will be bishops uh, for the Catholic Church in China. Um, what remains unresolved, I mean, many things remain unresolved. This is clearly part of an ongoing process. But what also remains unresolved is the many bishops who have been appointed by the Pope, by the Vatican over the years, who are still not recognized uh, by the government of China and not allowed uh, to function freely and openly in that country. So that's a very brief and of necessity sketchy overview of the deal. Um, and so now let me say a bit about what's at stake from the perspective of religious freedom. And I want to start with the big picture here, what I think the big picture things that are at stake, and then I will um, uh, get into a little bit more detail about those. Um, I have two things to say in terms of what's at stake, um, two big picture items. The first um, is the church's authority over appointing bishops. This is obvious. This is clear. This is what the dispute is about. Who actually has the authority to appoint the bishops? Um, uh, I remember on a, a USERF, on a commission delegation to Vietnam, meeting some of the Vietnamese government's appointed heads of, of various religions, in particular meeting uh, the, the Cao Dai Cardinal, um, who runs the government-recognized part of the Cao Dai and not the unrecognized or underground part. Um, and it was, it was more sad than anything else seeing the way um, these government-appointed heads of religions were, were company men. I mean, there's a very old man who had spent his entire life in the leadership of the Cao Dai uh, religion, rising all the way to the top. This is an indigenous, syncretic uh, Vietnamese uh, religion. Um, and uh, and we, we couldn't get anything out of him, not a single, sent not a single religious sentiment, not um, uh, um, not, not any sense of needing any kind of religious freedom or reform in Vietnam or anything else like that. And so I tried to humanize it a little bit. I asked him, um, well, what, why did you choose this path for yourself? You know, someone who's dedicated his whole life uh, to, the leader, to leadership in a particular faith. And all he said was, I was just raised this way. That was it. That was his whole thing. Um, and, uh, and it was really painful um, to see the way, whether they're appointed by the government or just approved by the government, and therefore um, you know, having all the strings, all their puppet strings pulled, um, it, was, it was sad to see uh, the difficult circumstances um, that uh, either 
make these men, you know, turn them into company men or that uh, see them originating that way. Um, so the first point is um, that what is, uh, what's at stake is the church's authority over appointment to bishops. Um, the second thing in the big picture for what's at stake is um, what's known as the cynicization of religion. Uh, part of uh, uh, Xi Jinping's agenda is to cynicize everything he can touch, which is to say um, to create religion and everything else with Chinese characteristics. Um, and what I think this means essentially um, is that Catholicism, if it's going to uh, make a deal with China, um, has to accommodate itself somehow to Chinese communism. Uh, and this I see, these two things, conceding authority um, on the appointment of bishops um, and conceding um, in terms of principles, theology, witness um, uh, on, uh, on with the church's stance on communism um, is a deep compromise, a deep, deep compromise of the church's authority and the church's witness uh, after so much has been sacrificed by Catholics uh, in China. Um, now I take a negative view about all of this because I have to think that we have to be that I think that we have to be very clear-eyed about China's actions and intentions, uh, not deceive ourselves. Um, as Vice President Pence outlined here uh, just a week ago at the Hudson Institute, uh, the, the Chinese government is working against the United States at every level and on every dimension. Um, Walter Russell Mead uh, covered this, also covered the speech in the Wall Street Journal uh, shortly after. There's a good piece for those who read Public Discourse, um, the online journal of the Witherspoon Institute. Uh, they have one article a day on weekdays, and today's article uh, is about the Chinese government's attempt um, to control everything through uh, electronic monitoring, uh, cameras, and a social credit score uh, that controls unbelievably everything from your job prospects to your placement on dating sites and really uh, every, um, uh, every aspect of life. Um, uh, Xi's consolidation of power that was alluded to in the introduction, including cementing his own personal power and status, putting himself in the pantheon of Chinese leaders with Mao, ending the term limit so that he can stay on as long as he wants, the cynicization of religion, forcing religion and everything else to adopt so-called Chinese characteristics, and then, of course, as has been covered somewhat, uh, the increased persecution of religious groups. Um, Christians, uh, maybe most famously, uh, it, um, among this sort of crowd, uh, the decapitation of crosses, meaning requiring either knocking them off or requiring crosses to come down from the tops of churches in some regions of China, the demolition of churches and megachurches, um, a ban on online evangelization, um, as well as Bible sales, uh, bans on minors attending churches, again, things that we see uh, in many uh, communist and post-Soviet countries, um, uh, all an attempt to restrict uh, the growth uh, and spread of Christianity. Uh, the Uyghur Muslims, uh, primarily in the western part of the country, uh, that story is being told as well. Some reports name up to a million people in concentration camps or re-education camps, uh, subject to psycho psychological and physical torture, um, whether it's Chinese agents or Chinese cameras in the homes of Uyghur Muslims to make sure that they don't fast on Ramadan, to make sure they don't grow their beards too long, to make sure they don't give their children certain Muslim names, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, the story of the Tibetan Buddhists, I think, is very well known, uh, and with the uh, destruction of the Larungar Monastery uh, last year and many other steps, uh, the attempt to destroy all Tibetan identity and culture uh, proceeds apace. Um, 
Another story we know well, the Falun Gong, um, that doesn't t tend to get as much attention today uh, in the uh, mainstream media, but certainly uh, the Falun Gong um, remain subject to incredible victimization in China, and we could go on. So for the deal itself, uh, and I say all that again to repeat by way of context. If we're going to analyze the deal, we have to analyze this in the context of, of China's broader agenda and actions. The best case scenario, to be fair, the best case scenario is that the result of this deal is peace and unity for the church in China. Peace for the church in China because there will be less persecution of Catholics who can now practice freely. Um, they don't have to have an underground church anymore, though it's likely that some form of underground church um, uh, will persist uh, with dissenters from the deal. Um, and then unity, right? That the, it is important for the church on its own terms to have the underground and the recognized church be unified and not have an effective schism between two groups of Catholics in the country or anywhere in the world. Another possible good outcome from the deal uh, is that the new relations between China and the Vatican um, will result in good influence from the Vatican on China's policies. Uh, that the closer the relationship is, the more influence the Vatican will have, and presumably a positive influence on China's policies in general, whether that's toward Catholics or anyone else. Um, and finally, um, Another possible sign is that this could pave a path, a way forward for other groups in China. Um, naturally, not, uh, not all other groups uh, in and around China um, are centralized in the Catholic Church, and they don't necessarily have a hierarchy who can strike a single deal with the Chinese leadership. Um, but perhaps in other, way, in other ways, deals can be struck. So I think all of those things represent um, the best case scenario. Uh, so now let me jump into the more like what I call the more likely scenario, uh, i.e., why the deal is not a good deal or not a good idea. Uh, first, and this has been widely reported, there's a, a letting down of the underground church. Um, what did the underground church suffer for? Was it worth it? What message will it send to Catholics in other countries who are resisting their government? How does it affect other religious groups who are still unrecognized? Will it create more pressure for the unrecognized groups uh, to conform, to give in, and so on? Uh, second, uh, in some ways, I think the deal is not likely to be honored by China. Um, how collaborative will China be in selecting the bishops? Um, it's interesting, at least on the veto version uh, of the deal, it puts a tremendous onus on the church to say no. It puts the church, it puts the pope in a very difficult position um, if China comes and says, okay, here's our slate of bishops, please approve them. Uh, and there is the danger that China will exert pressure to turn the approval into a rubber stamping, in which case China has it both ways. It has its ability to pick the bishops it wants, and it has the bishops uh, gaining the recognition and approval of the Vatican. Um, so, uh, in addition to letting down the underground church, there is certainly the possibility that will not lead to um, any more independence for Catholic governance in China. Um, it also, uh, third, sets a bad precedent, um, both in China and elsewhere. It rewards China's bad behavior, uh, you know, that if, if you uh, oppress the church enough, um, the church will concede. Um, I think the obvious way, and you, this is the kind of thing you would see and probably have seen on Twitter, um, is the, the simple way um, to consider whether 
uh, whether China, whether this is a, a good precedent or a bad precedent, uh, is to think about the counterfactual. Uh, would the Vatican make a, make a deal like this with Donald Trump? Um, now, I recognize uh, that in today's climate, it's probably more likely that Donald Trump can select the next bishop and the next Supreme Court justice. Uh, but even so, um, I think it's obvious that um, if, if uh, Donald Trump sent a note to the Vatican and said, um, uh, I'd like to... Uh, I'd like to I'd like to deliver to you uh, my slate of potential bishops that that would be uh, not only roundly opposed but not only roundly opposed but laughed out of town, um, and uh, and so I think that um, I think that the fact that this kind of thing would be inconceivable um, uh, to us in a more conciliatory atmosphere uh, should make us very skeptical of it in a very oppositional atmosphere uh, like the one in China. Um, Fourth, I think that this abets probably the worst pro-China church insiders, like Bishop Sarando. Uh, I wrote a piece in uh, First Thing online in First Things when Bishop Sarando, um, when the news of, of this impending deal was out some time ago, uh, said that China is actually the best country in the world on social justice. Um, that was an absolutely preposterous statement, dangerous for many reasons that I put uh, in, uh, in black and white at that time, and so won't repeat it here, but I think certainly insofar um, as there are apologists for Chinese communism in, within the Vatican, I think their hands will only be strengthened by this. And then um, finally, uh, on why I think this is not a good idea, um, is the point about Taiwan. Um, uh, Seth Cropsey has encouraged me to think about the ways uh, in which Taiwan is one of the targets of this deal. Uh, the Vatican, as you may know, is the only European state that still recognizes Taiwan. Um, and there were rumors um, that, that, that abandoning Taiwan was going to be one of the conditions of this deal. Um, it wasn't, um, but what if it were? Or what if that's the next condition for the next step in this ongoing dialogue? Um, and I agree with that. Uh, I agree um, that it, it must be uh, part of China's plan here um, to use the uh, growing relationship with the Vatican as leverage um, to get the Vatican to contribute to the isolation and abandonment of Taiwan. But I actually think there's something more here, uh, a big final point for me. Um, if we step back and say, why does China want the, wh wh Why is China involved in all of this to begin with? Why not uh, just step away? Why not let the Catholic Church do what it wants? Um, and the answer is that because the communists understand, as other communists in the world continue to understand, have understood in the past, that religion is a threat to total state authority. Um, religion is a threat uh, to total state authority because religion. Um, and religious freedom, I believe, is the conceptual starting point for all of human rights. Religion and religious freedom tell us that there's a part of life, there's a part of human existence that isn't owned by the state, that doesn't belong to the government. And by insisting that there's some part of our lives, um, and this is the same story with Jesus and the Roman Empire, um, when, that, um, when that first light comes in to shine in the darkness and says that not every human being is just a cog in the machine, not every human being is just property of the state, um, that begins to open the door to the whole family of human rights. And I think it's an important reason why we consider religious freedom our first freedom, not just because it's in the Bill of Rights, but because it's the conceptual starting point for all human rights. And therefore, by definition, religion, religious faith, and religious freedom are always a threat, necessarily, by definition, 
always a threat to totalitarian power. And so it doesn't matter if it's 60 million uh, Christians in a country of 1.3 billion people. Um, in principle, it is a threat to their power. The church spent centuries fighting for the right to name its own bishops. Those who have studied Western civilization know this. But this not only gives ground on the principle of investiture of naming the bishops, it causes scandal because not only, uh, not only because it compromises the church's witness against communism in general and Chinese totalitarianism, totalitarianism in particular, but also because it compromises the church's witness for religious freedom, for this very point that I said, that people belong to God and not to the state. It says that if you oppress the church, then the church will yield authority over herself. And it says that if someone denies your religious freedom, it is not really going to the mat over. And if we know one thing um, about religious freedom, it is the thing most of all that people in this world are, going, are willing to go to the mat over, uh, and we should support them in that. As a disclaimer, let me just say that all of these matters are difficult, are, are subject to very difficult prudential judgments. Um, we don't know if the Vatican is categorically wrong here. Only time will tell. Um, the people on the inside have far more information and experience than we do with these matters. Um, and so uh, we don't have the inside knowledge to really say what's going on and how this will all turn out. Um, but at least that is my view from the outside, that this is probably a bad deal. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Seth, for inviting me to this important panel on Vatican-China relations and religious freedom. And uh, this is an important uh, topic, as Dr. Mark pointed out. Uh, religion is the foundation and the Catholic of freedom, human freedom, and the Catholic Church has been in the forefront of defending human rights around the world for, for a long time in recent history. It is a subject that I care about both as a journalist, author of a book about Pope John Paul II's uh, response to feminism, and as a media freedom advocate in the United States and abroad. The Hudson Institute has been in the forefront of assessing and exposing various threats to freedom worldwide, and I'm grateful for this opportunity to speak here from my own experience and my study of the Catholic Church in formerly communist-ruled Poland and its Vatican connections. I'm not here on behalf of any organization. I don't have any current or past financial or other links with China, the Vatican, the Catholic Church, the Polish government, or any other foreign government, foreign business, or foreign academic institution. I only note this because the Chinese government has been known to engage in influence buying abroad and in using pressure to force censorship. Even on my former employer, The Voice of America, as was apparently the case in the 2017 interview with Chinese whistleblower 
businessman Guo Wengui, who wanted to expose such practices of the Chinese government more fully, and had his interview shortened by VOA's senior management after the Chinese government protested and made threats. VOA senior manager denied that pressure from the Chinese government was involved in any programming decision. I had a career as a broadcaster and manager for the taxpayer-funded VOA in the old United States Information Agency, USIA, and later the Broadcasting Board of Governors, the BBG, which is now called the U.S. Agency for Global Media, USAGM. But I left U.S. government service in 2006, and I'm involved now only with independent NGOs uh, in uh, San Francisco and in Portland, Oregon. I also want to note that I'm not a China expert, and therefore my presentation here today will be limited to a look at the struggles for religious freedom under communism in East Central Europe and the Vatican's so-called Ostpolitik of the 1960s and the 1970s. But in an attempt to probe deeper into how churches, religious groups, and Western governments could best deal with ideologically communist or otherwise actively anti-religious regimes, including post-communist and other authoritarian governments, as in China or Russia, I will try to offer some very general conclusions based on the East European and Soviet experience of the Cold War period up to the early 1990s. Other panelists, Dr. Mark and, uh, and uh, uh, the other panelists, are China experts and can tell us how these lessons and members of the, of the audience may or may not apply to the current struggle for religious freedom and other basic human rights in China and for the future of the Catholic Church in that country. But um, I won't try here to analyze the current state of religion in China, since this has not been the subject of my previous research and writing, and the new Vatican-China agreement is not the topic of my current presentation. As I can see, however, there are both differences and also many similarities between the suppression of religion in communist-ruled Poland and in China in the 20th century, and the astonishing continuation of suppression of religion in China in the 21st century. Reading news accounts and such documents as the 2017 U.S. State Department Human Rights Report, with its extensive segments on violations of religious freedom, shows that the still very harsh treatment of religion by the Chinese government today is somewhat similar to, and even in many ways much harsher, than what Poland had experienced under a communist regime led then by already reformed communist leader Edvard Gerek in the 1970s. China, a great power, and the Chinese leaders are therefore now, as it seems, about 50 years behind in terms of their evolving post-communist, but still communist-rooted anti-religious ideology and policies, which I find truly disturbing and sad considering China's own rich culture and the country's recent economic advances and progress in many other areas. Economic progress has been far greater in China than what communist-ruled Poland was able to experience under somewhat reformed communism in the 1970s. But in terms of religious freedom and some other human rights, China is still behind communist-ruled East-Central East European nations of 50 years ago. This is somewhat astounding behavior by a big power like China and could possibly lead to major conflicts and upheavals in the future unless the Chinese leadership becomes truly committed to establishing harmonious and mutually beneficial relations with various religions. 
I can't speculate whether the Chinese government will or will not do this, but I'm, I'm hoping that it will. The membership and influence of Catholic churches in Poland and China, of course, are vastly different, and were vastly different, as, they, as are their respective historical and cultural roots. The Catholic Church in Poland now includes more than 90% of the population. It has, linked, it has linked the nation with Western Europe and the West through Rome for hundreds, hundreds of years. Christianity and Catholicism are, in fact, closely linked with the founding of the Polish state in 966 AD. But while Polish culture, history, and government are all deeply connected with the Catholic Church, the Polish Church has remained independent of the government, partly because it has been always linked closely with Rome and the Universal Catholic Church. The so-called patriotic pro-communist Catholic priests, as in China, were a were a tiny and insignificant minority in Poland during the Cold War. And the regime's efforts to create such a movement and promote them had failed while they succeed, succeeded in Soviet Russia and in China. Compared to Poland, the Catholic Church in China is relatively small in a vast nation, multi-religious nation. And it was split into two large groups, one of them fully controlled by the government, as Dr. Mark pointed out something that Poland never experienced because the Polish people would not accept such a separate state church as much as the communist authorities tried to create one. It just didn't happen. At the same time, China is now a great power on its own. Poland was not a great power in the 20th century and is not now. During the Cold War, it had to contend with the constant threat of a military intervention by the Soviet Union, which would have almost certainly resulted in great bloodshed. This enormous looming threat played a major role in the development of church-state relations during the Cold War in Poland, as the hierarchy of the Polish Catholic Church wanted to avoid any further loss of life at all possible cost. That's understandable because Poland lost six millions of its citizens during World War II. Three million millions of them were Jew Jews, and the rest were mostly ethnic Poles. And the church simply did not want to engage in a futile and bloody conflict with uh, the communist regime, which was fully in control because of the support of the Soviet Union. Without the Soviet Union, there would have been no communist regime in Poland after the war, after World War II. China, on the other hand, has not faced such an external threat, at least not in the nuclear age. The only threat China faced, it seems, was Marxist-Leninist-Stalinist-Soviet-style communism, which became Mao's-style communism with its anti-religious, anti-human rights, totalitarian ideology. Ironically, an ideology which was a truly recent Western invention, while the Chinese communists have used the argument that Christianity, which is over 2,000 years old, was a foreign Western imperialist threat to China, and communism somehow was not. Communism was responsible for the deaths of millions of Chinese, and this murderous history may represent yet another obstacle to the Chinese leadership being able to come to terms with its past and to start treating religion as any modern democratically elected government is now expected to treat religion. To help explain what is going on between the Vatican and China, in today's talk I will focus primarily on the historic 1950 agreement between the Catholic Church and the communist government in Poland. This agreement was quite different, perhaps, perhaps, from the current Vatican-China agreement, but we don't know its 
provisions, as Dr. Mark pointed out. It was negotiated by the Polish bishops without a direct participation or approval from the Vatican, because the communist government in the late 1940s and the early 1950s cut off the access of Polish bishops and Poland's primate, Cardinal Wyszynski, uh, uh, from, from Rome. Again, there are a few interesting similarities as well as significant differences between this Polish agreement, uh, the first agreement ever reached between a Catholic church hierarchy and a communist regime, and the September 2018 Vatican Chinese Communist Government Agreement. The main observation I want to make today is that communist, post-communist, and other authoritarian governments lacking legitimacy that comes only with free and democratic elections, and some of them also short on moral ethics, which is not just a failing of, the, of China and the Chinese government. Such governments, however, may enter into various agreements of convenience with local churches and the Vatican, but they can rarely be trusted to respect them fully and will more than likely violate the spirit and the terms of these agreements if they can get away with it, and usually they can, using propaganda and disinformation to obscure their tactics. At the same time, however, they may not completely disregard all the provisions of what they had agreed to and return to obliterating churches as before with abandon because it is no longer in their interest to do so. While these agreements may, in the short run, and sometimes in the long run, place constraints on both sides, including the communist side, and may, as they had in Poland, lessen some repressive actions against religious believers and churches, uh, something that Dr., uh, Dr. Mark alluded to, one can be certain that communist and other authoritarian governments, more often than not, will continue using their well-tested tactics and tools to undermine independent churches and church leaders they disapprove of and use these tactics as they see fit when it, when it is in their interest. At the same time, most of these underhanded tactics for doctrinal or moral reason remain unacceptable and cannot be used, nor should they be used the same way by, by various churches, the Vatican, or for that matter, most democratically elected governments which subscribe to the Judeo-Christian ethics and the constitutional rule of law. Historically, for the communists and many post-communists, the end justifies the means. It is a well-known communist adage. Their motto is not the truth shall set you free. Because they lack full legitimacy and carry a heavy historical burden of murder and repression, which they can't bring themselves to admit, these governments are afraid of telling the truth and will fight the truth with propaganda. Whereas churches, which are the keepers of tradition, tend to protect historical truths and moral values, generally speaking. It places them at a tactical disadvantage in dealing with authoritarian regimes and calls, but not necessarily strategic disadvantage, and calls for a great deal of knowledge of local conditions and culture, as well as skepticism about any promises made by, the, by communist regimes, knowledge and skepticism which eager Western leaders and diplomats, including Vatican diplomats, often lacked. As many of you know, in the 21st century, the end goal for less than fully legitimate governments may now simply be staying in power and being in charge of economic wealth and resources without the risk of free and democratic elections and scrutiny by free press, rather than destroying religion and churches outright. Some of the favorite and still used regime tactics against their own populations and foreign public opinion are deceptive and misleading propaganda, disinformation, creating division, 
de vida et impera, infiltrating and controlling churches and using religion to gain legitimacy and to triumph in the area of foreign policy and domestic and foreign public opinion. Churches, therefore, must be forever, forever vigilant. They must avoid making unnecessary, far-reaching concessions and must have a clear and convincing public message in explaining their dealings with any repressive governments. Uh, that's why the secrecy surrounding the Vatican-China uh, agreement is so astounding. They, they must engage in effective public diplomacy. They must at all times retain the respect and support of their members. In the end, any of these negotiated state church agreements may turn out to be beneficial to the church, or they may weaken it and allow it to be further co-opted. In Poland, these negotiations and agreements between the church and the communist government ultimately worked out to the benefit of the church and the population, even when the ultimate goal of the communists was to use them to consolidate power and to split the Catholic Church. The Polish church actually became stronger during the Cold War, unlike in some other communist-ruled nations in East Central Europe, where the Vatican played a much greater role in negotiating with the governments, and the local bishops were not as engaged as the Polish bishops were. This was noted by American papal biographer George Weigel and others who have studied communist and Vatican archives and talked to the major players in those talks. It remains to be seen what will happen in China. It depends very much on what compromises have been made or will be made by the Vatican and local bishops, how powerful and independent various churches are in a given country and culture, and, culture, and how such agreements with the Vatican and agreements between local churches and government authorities are interpreted by the believers and the public opinion. Will the Catholic Church in China retain its moral authority and be willing and able to defend human rights in the aftermath of such agreements? Or will it become dominated by regime agents? Which is what happened in some East European countries, at least temporarily, but not in Poland. This is the question that should be asked. Uh, Cardinals Wyszynski, the primate of Poland during that time, and Wojtyła, the future Pope, John Paul II, had made sure that the Catholic Church in Poland retained strong support of Catholics and remained independent as much as it was possible under communism. So when the Polish communist regime, after violating almost all of the provisions of the 1950 agreement, demanded in 1953 that the Polish episcopate appoint, actually appoint bishops and priests selected by the regime, the Polish bishops, led by Cardinal Wyszynski, issued their famous non possumus declaration, which means we cannot, and said that they would <coughs> rather keep religious posts unfilled than appoint undeserving individuals in violation of the church's laws. This declaration was issued in 1953, following the 1950 uh, agreement, which was signed with the communist government by Cardinal Wyszynski and the Polish Episcopate. Cardinal Wyszynski understood that personnelist policy, if you want to use a cliche from today's management theory, Thanks to the fact that the Polish bishops did not capitulate in the face of enormous pressure from the regime, the Polish church never stopped being able to defend basic human rights, even when it refrained from directly challenging or harshly criticizing the government. Wyszynski and Wojtyła always referred to the pro-Soviet communist regime as the government of Poland or government authorities and to government leaders as gentlemen and they didn't particularly like it because this was a bourgeois term, or some of them didn't like it. 
They, these bishops, uh, cardinals, did not call the government in public a communist regime, which it was. But they knew, and most people in Poland knew, that it was an unelected body imposed on the nation by, by, this, by Soviet Russia. The population also understood the need for, for, for the use of more restrained language by the church and the need for the Polish bishops to deal with the regime for practical reasons. But the Polish people never doubted on which side the church stood at all times and whose interests it was trying to protect. After the 1953 non possumus declaration by the Polish bishops, the communists promptly imprisoned Cardinal Wyszynski, with whom they had signed the agreement in 1950. But they had to release him three years later in 1956 and seek his help when the regime was faced with workers' uprisings against dismal economic conditions, widespread food and consumer goods shortages, food price increases, and against Soviet domination. If it were not for the Soviet Union, the economic crisis and uh, the inevitable overthrow of the communist government would have led to a Soviet military intervention, as it did in Hungary, which also happened in 1956. By extending limited support to the new communist government, Cardinal Wyszynski and the Polish church made sure that a Soviet military intervention did not happen. Thanks to Wyszynski, and by the way, the Polish service of Radio Free Europe under Jan Nowak, its director, Poland avoided the Hungarian experience, while the Hungarian service Radio Free Europe broadcasts were far less restrained and implied the possibility of active Western support for the Hungarian freedom fighters that was simply not feasible and not even contemplated by the West or the United States. The vast difference between China and Poland is that in 1950, the Catholic Church in Poland was truly powerful, both in numbers and cultural influence, even when it faced a tremendous threat from the Soviet-imposed communist regime. It also had a powerful and single, wise, statesmen like leader and Cardinal Stefan Wyszynski and later Cardinal Karol Wojtyła. Even without him, even without them, the Polish church still had a lot of leverage. It could call on the population to take or not to take certain actions and be obeyed. The Polish church had no media access under communism, uh, radio stations and uh, any electronic media was, was taken away from the church. But every Sunday, the bishops could reach and address millions of Catholic Poles during Catholic masses. In the radio age, it had no radio, but it had a powerful pulpit to speak directly to, to the people at least one day a week. While Radio Free Europe and to a much lesser extent, the Voice of America provided another channel for free uncensored information. Both Wyszynski and Wojtyła secretly communicated through intermediaries with the head of the Polish service of Radio Free Europe. And I was able to interview Cardinal Wojtyła for the Voice of America during his visit to Washington in 1976, two years before he became Pope. In the late 1940s and the 1950s, Polish communists imprisoned priests, murdered and tortured some, uh, recruited some as agents, but very few, about 10%, which is not really a large number considering other professional groups and most of them were reluctant agents. But they did not murder priests on a vast scale or close down churches on a vast scale as it had been done earlier in the Soviet Union or later in China under Mao or in some other uh, communist-ruled nations in the, during the Cold War. 
they simply did not dare to move fast against the church because it would have almost certainly led to a popular uprising in Poland. They attacked, the communists attacked the Catholic Church directly and at the margins by closing down church-run institutions, such as hospitals and schools. But my mother was still able to graduate from a Catholic high school run by nuns in 1950, uh, where future Pope John Paul II was a guest teacher of religion. Uh, by 1953, such Catholic schools in Poland were gone, as were most Catholic institutions. But churches remained open and were full of people on Sundays and most other days. Surprisingly, the Catholic University of Lublin remained open, and that was uh, one of the provisions of the 1950 agreement with the government. And some censored religious magazines and books were published in very limited numbers. They were allowed to be published. Practicing Catholics were, however, second-class citizens, and most of their rights were denied, as they are in China. Not right now, you know, 60 years later. The Chinese church today is not powerful in terms of numbers, as of its members, and any leverage it has with the government remains small. Considering who they deal with and their relative weak position vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese government, the church hierarchy both in the Vatican and in China must therefore be extremely cautious and tough. Negotiators making compromises, but never on basic <coughs> principles and values, which was the position taken by both Poland's uh, primate Cardinal Stefan Wyszyński and Cardinal Karol Wojtyła, future Pope John Paul II. But as long as basic values of religion and religious tradition were not compromised, Wyszyński and Wojtyła were strong proponents of establishing and maintaining a constant dialogue with the communist regime or any opponent of the church and religion in seeking peace and harmony with enemies, which are Christian and Catholic values. The idea behind the strategy was not to make the situation of the communist regime easier or better, but to protect the church, hope that the communist regime will change as a result of internal or external developments, and to outlast the regime. It was a survival strategy, which could be the strategy of the of the Vatican vis-a-vis -vis China today. We don't know that for sure. Cardinal Wyszynski was willing to talk to and negotiate with anyone if it were in the interest of the church and in the interest of his beloved country. Some compromises were simply not acceptable and were never made by the Polish church, such as allowing the government to nominate and select bishops and, and priests. Uh, but under the 1950 uh, agreement, the government was given the power uh, to veto uh, uh, candidates that the church would present to the government prior to sending its list to the pope. So the government could say no to uh, persons recommended by the church, by the bishops, or, or they could say no to any, any candidates. And if they didn't say yes, then the, the Polish Catholic Church would not, uh, would not uh, uh, propose anyone for that position, and that position would remain vacant. They would never agree to accept a priest or a bishop suggested by the government if, if uh, Wyszynski and Wojtyła, the Polish bishops, would not agree, did not find the person to be acceptable to them. Uh, in any case, you know, as I said earlier, the, the so-called uh, patriot priests in Poland were very few in number, and they, they, they did not hold any uh, higher positions within the Catholic hierarchy. 
there were lines that would never be crossed by the Polish bishops, by neither Wyszynski nor, but neither Wyszynski nor Wojtyla would outright denounce the communist regime, refuse to deal with it, or call on the population for active resistance against the regime. That's something that they would not do uh, because they were afraid of what it, uh, what it could produce. And it was not uh, you know, part of church's teachings in any case. They knew perfectly well what the communist government stood for, but they recognized it as a civil authority in charge of the country. They also knew that the communist government will violate agreements they were negotiating and signing, but understood their value as a short-term guard against possibly even greater abuses. These agreements were some, something they could point to later when the government would inevitably violate their terms. The Polish bishops used these agreements to their advantage in the public relations and information war uh, with the regime. So they, they really uh, thought about it very carefully and took wise steps, but never capitulated to demands that, uh, that the church doctrine, the church law, and, and the Vatican even at, at that time would not approve. In rereading some of the documents while preparing for this presentation, I was struck by how often Cardinal Wyszynski communist, mentions communist propaganda, its dangers, and the need to counter propaganda lies with the truth. So this is also very important for the church and, and the Vatican in, in trying to explain its deal uh, with, with the Chinese government. Considering the fact that communism in Poland was not going away fast or changing fast as long as the Soviet Union existed, modus vivendi with the communist authorities was the temporary goal of the Polish bishops as they waited for the international situation to change and perhaps the communist regime to change with it, which it did to some degree, to a large degree, in later years. The regime in Poland did indeed change over time. Uh, Later, they even sent uh, Wyszynski birthday greetings and, and praised him for being a wise uh, leader and statesman. Uh, as the communist regime in China has changed, uh, but more slowly in some areas than in others. But from the beginning to the end, Polish communists and post-communists never fully gave up on trying with various intensity to create a split between the Polish church and the Vatican, a split between the local hierarchy and the faithful, caused divisions between the bishops, divisions among the priests and the faithful, a split between Wyszynski and Wojtyła, which Wojtyła would simply not allow to happen. The divide and conquer strategy failed thanks to the power of the church, its strong and unwavering support among the population and the wise leadership by, by both Wyszynski and Wojtyła. It is also true that at, at some point the Polish regime realized that it will never destroy the church in Poland and tried to use it to gain some additional support domestically and internationally. Several times, the church rescued the regime from what could have become massive popular uprisings by angry Polish workers. The bishops did it only to prevent internal civil war and a Soviet intervention with a potential for, for, for an even greater bloodshed. There were, of course, some areas where the church and the communist state had similar interests, even in foreign policy. Both the regime and the church desired the West German recognition of Poland's western borders, but they would pursue somewhat different strategies to achieve this goal. Both the church and the regime supported some social norms and behaviors to improve the health and welfare of the population. They fought alcoholism and other such vices. Toward the very end of the Cold War, the regime tried to rely on the church to help it negotiate the best exit strategy for communist party members. 
but by then the the regime was negotiating with with solidarity not not with the church the experience with communism in eastern europe particularly in poland was in some ways similar but also already significantly different than in the Soviet Union. A change of communist strategy happened a little earlier in the Kremlin itself when it looked likely that Hitler's Germany might conquer the Soviet Union in 1941. Even Stalin found it expedient to release some Orthodox priests from the Gulag and allow a few religious observances in order to gain greater support of the population for fighting the Nazi Germans instead of surrendering. He did it by appealing to religious and patriotic feelings among the Russians. It was an act of desperation on his part. He, of course, made sure that the Russian Orthodox Church's hierarchy was fully, fully controlled by the secret police, and most of the lower clergy, if not all, were fully compromised in favor of the communist government and served as N NKVD or later KGB informers. Now, that was not the case in, in Poland where the Catholic Church. This remained, however, a goal and practice of communist governments in East Central Europe, even in the 1960s and, 19, and the 1970s, when they negotiated with their churches and the Vatican. When these governments made deals with local churches and the Vatican, they did, did so out of political necessity and expediency, not because they cared about the well-being well of religious believers. George Weigel, biographer of Pope John Paul II, who is a preeminent expert on the Vatican and had remarkable access to John Paul II, has strongly condemned the so-called Vatican's Ostpolitik, a diplomatic reaching out to the communist regimes in East Central Europe under Popes John XXIII and Paul VI in the 1960s and the 1970s. Weigel believes that excessively hopeful and thus naive Vatican diplomats were outmaneuvered by the communists in almost all communist rule countries except for Poland, compromised way too much, and reached weak agreements which were promptly violated and undermined the church's moral authority, but not in Poland. Some of these other churches became heavily infiltrated by communist agents. If the Vatican's diplomats have tried to displace Cardinal Wyszynski in, de in dealing with the communist regime in Warsaw, they certainly did not succeed. Uh, their ultimate failure was the election of uh, Wojtyla as Pope John Paul II in 1978. Both Wyszynski and Wojtyla, but especially Wojtyla, had made sure that they had a close personal relations, relationship with Pope Paul VI and informed him how best to deal with Polish communist leaders. They insisted and got the Pope's approval for participating in these negotiations. While Wyszynski and Wojtyla could not get the Vatican to do everything they wanted at all times, they prevented the Vatican from making concessions they did not want. They did not allow themselves to be displaced. So while one can criticize the way the Vatican's Ostpolitik was conducted, I would not say that it was unnecessary or ultimately a complete failure. It was part of a much larger diplomatic effort and separate radio information and public diplomacy efforts of Western governments, including various US administrations, engaging with individual communist regimes in order to split the Soviet bloc and to moderate the behavior of communist leaders. Nixon's historic visit to communist China was certainly a successful policy change. But there were many unsuccessful Western attempts to deal with the communist world or with other repressive regimes. The Munich Agreement, the Yalta Agreement, President Obama's recent with Russia, other agreements such as the Cuban and uh, Iranian ones may not be complete failures, but they may have delayed human rights reforms rather than advanced them due to naive 
and unnecessary concessions without getting enough in return and creating a mistaken impression of US support for these regimes. Again, even my former employer, The Voice of America, was guilty of such propaganda as demonstrated in an independent 2017 study by the American Foreign Policy Council. By the way, some of the VOA Mandarin service journalists who had opposed the management's decision to cut short the Guo and GUI interview are now being threatened by senior VOA management with firing. In historical perspective of Western dealings with the communist and post-communist world or other authoritarian rulers, the Vatican diplomacy certainly does not have a monopoly on reaching weak, ineffective, and possibly harmful agreements. The Vatican was frequently behind the curve in its ability to properly assess the situation of the church and the strength of the regimes behind the Iron Curtain. When Cardinal Wyszynski and the Polish bishops signed the 1950 agreement with the, with the communist regime, the historic agreement, the first such agreement, without, uh, without the Vatican's prior approval, Monsignor uh, Tardini, later Cardinal and future Secretary of State, uh, who was then already the chief Vatican diplomat under Pius XII, was at first reported to be <coughs> overcome by pain on learning that the understanding had been signed. But Pope Pius XII was later to give his full approval and made Wyszynski Cardinal in uh, January 1953, a few months before Wyszynski was was uh, imprisoned by the communists. So that, I think that concludes my presentation and uh, thank you for your, for your patience and, 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 and your attention. Thank you. Thank you, Ted. <clears throat> uh, Nina, could, uh, could I start out with a question here? Uh, actually, a couple. Um, to the extent that um, that there was a modus vivendi uh, between the church and communist Polish rulers. Is such an agreement um, or the outline of such an agreement possible in communist China today on religion? And the, let me just ask the, 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 the follow-on to that, which is that China plays long-term. Um, how should we look at this agreement uh, is, it, um, is it aimed internally only? Um, what's the effect in other, in other places? Uh, for example, how will this affect Taiwan and the Catholic population there? How will it affect Taiwan itself? So those are some of the uh, questions raised by both our speakers here. And if you're willing, we'd be well, delighted to yeah, hear your thanks. thoughts. Thanks so much, Seth. Um, let me just start by saying that I think that the best part of provisional agreement is that it's provisional. And as an um, international religious freedom and human rights lawyer, I am quite pe pessimistic, um, short term, medium term, and long term. And as a practicing Catholic, um, I believe in miracles. So um, maybe, the, maybe it'll be rescinded. Uh, and that's what the provisional uh, adjective is about. Uh, yeah, I think our, my co-panelists did a very able job of laying out um, and really uh, giving a context of why this is doomed, um, both for, um, uh, for the Vatican and for the Chinese uh, church. And 
it's important to recognize that the church is also a sovereign state of the Holy See. And the, um, this, the uh, foreign diplomatic corps, the Curia, of the, Vat, of the Holy See have been working diligently on trying to um, get an agreement with China, with Beijing, for 25 or 30 years, for as long as my career has been. And um, they have done this. So this is a very big deal for them. This is their Nixon in China moment, where they, they feel that they've uh, really achieved a, a major uh, plan. Um, they've done so at, by, uh, over these decades, whitewashing the persecution that has taken place. And, um, by, and, and they discouraged me. I've, I've written, uh, I started in the late 80s, early 90s, writing these reports on China's persecuted Christians and have documented in them about 70 Catholic bishops and priests and equal number of uh, evangelical pastors in prison at that time. Some of these men had been there for 20 to 30 years. These were uh, some of the longest-term political prisoners, religious prisoners in the world. Um, but they did not, uh, they discouraged me uh, from writing it, and I had to meet with their head negotiator, um, uh, Monsignor Claudio Celli, who, who led the Vatican negotiations with China, and said, are you saying that as a layperson I don't have a right? And he said, no, you do have a right. Um, also, uh, you know, bishops were telling the White House at the time, the Clinton White House, not to listen to, uh, to pay attention to this, that this would wreck their negotiations. And um, they didn't, also didn't like any criticism of the Chinese Catholic um, Bishops Conference, which was not recognized by the Vatican. Um, and they, um, one of my criticism was that they, they really were very mute on uh, uh, Catholic doctrine, especially at that time during the one-child policy, the coerced abortions. Um, performed by the state without the um, choice, of, if you want to call it that, of the, of the, uh, the mother. Um, the popes during this period were, uh, were, were different. Um, John Paul II made a cardinal, the heroic Cardinal Kung, Ignatius Kung, whom I had the privilege of meeting when he got out of prison. He was there for about 20, 30 years. He made him a cardinal in pictura, meaning that it was held in secret. But this gave tremendous uh, moral boost to the uh, struggling, the martyr, martyr church at that time. Um, uh, cardinal Kung was the first Catholic bishop imprisoned in 1951 by the communists because they refused to recognize the pope as head of the church. Um, Pope Benedict wrote a letter also um, saying that the, uh, to the, ch the Chinese church, saying that the uh, bishop's conference there did not uphold the doctrine of the Vatican, and giving, again, giving hope to the, and moral support to the underground church. Um, Pope Francis took a different tack from um, the very beginning of his papacy. In 2013, he started writing letters to the uh, the uh, Beijing leadership, that, that is the um, government, um, and he was very, uh, he was moved to tears 
um, in announcing this plan. He said that this is the, signifies a unified Catholic church in China, and um, that has been his dream, and that it, it ends the long years of clandestine work practice. Um, he, as Daniel alluded to, he has a very different understanding of his own role in the appointment of bishops than has been reported by um, many others, including the media and including uh, who are relying presumably on the Curia. And in this new report that I commend uh, that came out yesterday, the uh, CECC, that's um, Senator Rubio and Congressman Chris Smith's report on the uh, Congressional Executive China Commission. It's of over 300 pages. It details and, 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 and um, asserts that, th that the Pope, under this agreement, which is secret, we don't really know for sure, will only get veto power. Well, the Pope says, and, and he said this to America Magazine, which is a Jesuit publication, and he is a Jesuit, it came out today, and it says, with regard to the provisional agreement, Pope Francis said that, quote, what is here is dialogue about the eventual candidates. This is, meaning the bishops, this is done in dialogue, but Rome nominates, the Pope nominates. This is clear. So this is a very uh, different understanding than we've heard. Um, and it could be, um, uh, and it's mystifying why it's so different. Um, there are about 115 or so bishops in China. And um, the pope has agreed to all but, had agreed to all but, and played a role in all but seven of them. So. Uh, this, um, there was a, a Vatican role up until now. Um, and those seven um, were uh, ordained bishops without the Vatican's uh, permission and uh, as a prerequisite for the agreement, not part of the agreement, but prerequisite, um, Pope Francis um, uh, brought them back from excommunication and reinstated them in the church. And, and one of them right now is at the Youth Synod in, in, in the Vatican that's going on right now. Um, but whoever appoints the bishops, it's clear that they won't be free. Um, it, it's emphatically clear about that. Um, this is one of the worst periods of crackdown across the board in human rights in China since the Cultural Revolution. Um, and there had been a thawing um, before, after the Cultural Revolution. There was a crackdown right before, right after, uh, in 89, actually, when, when the Beijing saw what Pope John Paul II had uh, done in Poland. And, um, and then there was another thaw, and now we're going through a tremendous crackdown. Um, so the, the, these bishops will not be able to uh, espouse and preach and teach and pass on, perpetuate. Uh, the, the, the church doctrine, for example, on abortion, on religious freedom, on even those issues that are extremely, uh, that have been elevated by Pope Francis, and that is capital punishment or immigration. And I'm thinking here of immigration from uh, North Korea, of refugees. Um, so the Pope, uh, in that sense, will not be head of the church. Um, being head of the church means more than kissing the ring, it means following this magisterium. This, uh, this tradition of, of church teaching that's been accepted by the popes over the centuries. 
he will be more of a figurehead. Um, the uh, Bishop uh, Sanchez Sedano, um, who's Argentine, who is the head of the Pontifical Commission on Political Science, uh, said, right now, those who are best in implementing social doctrine of the church are to the Chinese. Uh, that's nonsense. Um, there is no dissent allowed in China, no real political dissent. In fact, there are a million Muslims right now in uh, re-education camps, this vast network of re-education camps to, um, uh, to transform their thinking. And um, China yesterday acknowledged that by uh, making public a new law that, that recognizes these, these camps. Um, similarly, um, uh, oh, and, and, and you know, the, the church, uh, uh, as Danielle said, was, um, is a, a unique voice uh, in, in, um, in China as part of civil society that's independent from the government, um, this underground church that will now probably be, uh, go, have to go very deep underground or be destroyed. Um, interestingly, ex-Cardinal McCarrick um, has been um, the leading voice for um, the American church, Catholic church, uh, on China. He visited there eight times. Um, it's not clear who he represented. The Vatican at certain times said that he was not representing them. And he, I interviewed him in 2016 after he just returned from China. And he said that he was there on his own capacity, an official capacity. Um, but he has emerged as one of the chief uh, propagandists for this deal. And he said that, um, that the similarities between Pope Francis and President Xi um, was a special gift to the world. Uh, that was his quote. Uh, he was the first Western cardinal to, um, to travel to China um, after um, the, in 51. Um, so it's, it's interesting, it'd be an interesting thing to know um, who was paying for his trips. I know that the Clinton administration paid for one of those trips in 98, um, and he may have gone out as a commissioner. Uh, I served with him on the commission on, on uh, USERF. Um, but there were the one in 16, for example, um, I don't know who paid for it. He, he visited um, the head of the Chinese bishops' conference. That was his friend. And he stayed in a government seminary when he went. So um, how much he has, um, as an advisor to the pope, um, influenced his thinking. I know that his, um, uh, he has promoted this idea. His, his big thing was that the pope had to make a trip to China, that the, he had to, and he had this vision of the pope going through China. Um, and this, of course, would be done at the expense of Taiwan, and is probably one of the things that is still being hammered out. Um, and uh, you know, think about this: that Taiwan is the most free nation um, under the Freedom House rankings, and China is one of the worst. So Taiwan is one of the best, and it's and and um, they'd be trading out to that religious freedom if 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 that was the condition for the trip to. Um, you know, uh, switch its diplomatic recognition. So um, the, what does the church get out of it quickly? Uh, the pope will be a figurehead. There won't be the magisterium, um, at least in the foreseeable future, um, that is preached there, passed on. Um, 
it, the Pope will have some role in appointment of bishops. It's unclear. It's a little uh, contradictory statements now. We, it's unclear exactly what role and how that will role will uh, differ from the past. Um, there might be a trip to China. Um, the church will be unified, yes, but um, and that, as Cardinal Zen um, said of Hong Kong, former Cardinal Zen of Hong Kong, said that um, this means that the um, that more people will be in the cage, in the, that that this will this unified church will mean that the underground church, which has been a faithful church and suffered greatly as. Um, the private speakers acknowledged um, will be um, silenced and, and look more like the North Korean underground church. Um, part, part of this deal that um, has been reached did not seem to include any kind of um, demand from information um, about the imprisoned and disappeared bishops and priests that are still in China, like Bishop Sue of Baoding. Um, who disappeared in the late 90s and hasn't really been heard from since then. Uh, so uh, that, that does raise what will happen to this uh, underground church already. Um, the, um, uh, there are signs appearing outside of Catholic churches in China saying that um, <clears throat> pensioners who go to church will have their pensions removed. Um, Danielle also spoke about the social credit score. Uh, certainly that's going to be, um, uh, you're going to get a very low social credit score and you're not going to have access to schools and homes and right now even with a low social credit score you can't get on high speed trains or planes. Um, and frankly, um, what does this do to the uh, sacrament of confession? I mean, it's sacrament of reconciliation. This is one of the seven Catholic sacraments of the church. Um, I think that I think it's dead. I mean, I, I can't imagine anyone going to a government-controlled uh, confession and saying what they've done and expecting that not to affect their social credit scores. Um, the the uh, China gets out of it, of course. Um, a, a huge soft power prize. Um, it raises its moral stature and it rehabilitates it, um, human rights, uh, its, its deplorable human rights record um, uh, by the moral blessing of the Pope. Um, and Bishop Sancho Sedano um, has already um, invited Chinese of all people, um, organ transplant doctors to come for a joint Vatican-Chinese conference in Rome. Um, this, of course, has been the main accusation of Falun Gong of what has happened to their followers, that they have been um, put in prison and used as living um, uh, for, for the purposes of uh, harvesting organs for medical tourism or, or just for the Chinese people themselves. Um, and there's um, a good piece on that written by Louisa Greve in, um, uh, about the, uh, it, it, from the, from the coalition um, against organ um, transplant <coughs> harvesting. Um, North, this has not been lost on North Korea. Kim Jong-un has come out this week and invited the Pope to come to North Korea. 
Um, so, and, and it'll be used for influencing, um, the church will be used for influencing the West in the ways that Ted described happened um, in Eastern Europe in some cases. And it'll be used for spying on Chinese Catholics. Um, this is a hierarchical church, so it already has the grassroots all filtering up to bishop level and then um, the head of the bishop's conference. So. Um, this will be a very useful network for uh, keeping track of Catholics. So let me just um, conclude there, since we're way out of time. Thank you very much. <laughs> we have uh, some time uh, limited uh, for questions. Will you please, um, when called upon, wait for the microphone to reach you? Uh, and then identify yourself and to whom you would like to address your question. So, lady in the back row. Hi, my question, I'm Sasha Gong. My question is to Ted. I'm very curious because I came from a Presbyterian family in China. When I grow up, never heard of that. And I, well, uh, first in Poland, if can someone be, well, could someone be a, a member of the church and also a Communist Party member? Because I read one Chinese Catholic, uh, Catholic uh, church member wrote about, he's also a communist, wrote about his confession experience. First he confessed to the church and then he confessed the confessed to the communist <sighs> and then he confessed back to the church and back and forth drove him crazy. So anyway, so that's the first question. Can they be both? And uh, if they're both, who's their first allegiance? Okay. And second, at that time, did um, the Catholic priests have any, what kind of relationship did they have with the with Vatican? Were they part of you know uh, the whole? Say if they have a conference, could they go? And what kind of kind of con what kind of control the communists gave them? And also, thank you very much for paying attention to to our case. I'm one of the uh, VOA journalists. They want to file anyway. I'm still here, 18 months later. Thank you. Uh, th thank you, Dr. Gong. Uh, to answer your question. Yes, it was possible in, in the later period of uh, communist rule in Poland, let's say 1970s, late 1970s, 1980s, for members of the Communist Party to also be practicing Catholics. The communist government, the communist party no longer demanded that they be non-believers. That, of course, was not the case in the early 19, in the late 1940s, uh, 1950s, and in the 1960s. Uh, but there were mem many members of the Communist Party who joined the party for opportunistic reason, and they they went to church when nobody was watching. And certainly their families and uh, sometimes spouses would go to church. And they participated in some religious uh, uh, ceremonies. Uh, it was not a massive uh, crossover, but it happened. And later, the, the, the Polish Communist Party gave up on its, uh, on its insistence that you know, all communists must be non-believers. 
because they saw the benefits, uh, propaganda benefits and practical benefits, and they were weak and getting weaker. The economic conditions were, were getting worse, and they had to do something not to antagonize, uh, antagonize the, uh, the population. So, so that, that was their way of, of compromising. But uh, to answer your other question, Catholics in Poland from the very beginning until the very end had their, most of their rights were, were limited. Now, in the late 1940s and early 1950s, the government would not allow any bishops and, or any priests, or, or and almost all of them were prevented from traveling to Rome. Uh, they would not be given passports. It changed after 1956. Uh, well, no, al already after the signing of the 1950 agreement, they were hoping, they, they allowed some of them to go to Rome. Uh, Wojtyla, for example, went to Rome. Byszynski went to Rome. And the main reason for them to allow this was to get the Catholic Church to put pressure on the Vatican to recognize Poland's uh, regime, to extend diplomatic, uh, diplomatic recognition, and most of all to recognize Poland's claim to its western borders, because Poland was given part of the former German territory, and its eastern territories were taken over by, by Russia. So there was a foreign policy component to it, and, uh, and yes. But generally speaking, even later, most Catholics you know, found it difficult to, to get good jobs, to get good education, to, uh, you know, to advance, uh, uh, to use their talents, to choose their vocation. All of these rights were restricted, perhaps not as restricted as in the Soviet Union or in China, but it was, uh, it was a communist state. Yeah, I just wanted to add that in China, it's um, the Communist Party is banned from uh, members are banned from Still. yeah from being religious, and um, so it will be interesting to see how that develops with this agreement, and it might change, and also how the social credit scores are going to be graded with this agreement. Uh, are these bishops going to get higher scores or? Lower scores. It's, it's going to be uh, interesting to see how that shakes out. There are a hundred million Christians, thought to be a hundred million Christians in China today, and ver all but twelve million of them are uh, evangelicals, and most of them are underground. The twelve million are the Catholics, half of whom are underground. Uh, sure. Thank you. I'm Dave Rabinowitz, and this question is for anybody who'd like to answer. Uh, the Catholic Church in Poland uh, was very instrumental in the rise of solidarity, which led to the fall of the Polish government, spread through Eastern Europe, led ultimately to the fall of the Soviet Union. So it's understandable why Chinese government would be concerned about the Catholic Church. My question is, how would you compare the Chinese attempts to control the church with the actions about 17 centuries ago by the Roman Emperor Constantine, who took over Christianity, Romanized it, and basically created the Roman Catholic Church. Knock yourself out. <laughs> no, I, I really can't. Uh, no, no. 
That's pretty complicated. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would just say that, you know, Constantine seemed to want to have, promote this church. Um, and um, certainly China does not want to promote any religion. Uh, so it's it's a very different uh, circumstance. And, um, I mean, it's, you know, that it's, was... Yeah, it's, it's difficult to address certainly in a short time because, as you probably know from the question, there are uh, more than two, probably, but at least two very different views of of Constantine, right? Especially in, in, in more recent uh, Scottish, you know, Constantinism being kind of a, a Romanizing of the church versus uh, a Christianizing of the Roman Empire, I guess is maybe the, the simplest way to put it. Um, and um, and certainly, if you, I mean, if you have the more, I guess, cynical view, if we can call it that, then you can imagine that sounds like religion with Chinese characteristics. Um, uh, I think it's, uh, I mean, I think there are so many differences that it's hard to draw a comparison, but if it, if we say that the Chinese recognize it as a force and want to co-opt it, I mean, that fits with the, uh, what I'm calling the, the cynical view. Uh, of course, the, the uh, if we're lucky, the outcome is that in order to co-opt it, they give religion more breathing room, and then it catches fire and takes on a, a life of its own um, in the way, you know, maybe by the time um, communism was falling in Poland, they wished had been more aggressive uh, in the early stages. Maybe that would have just meant they would have collapsed sooner, but uh, no one can really say. Actually, to answer your question, um, the Catholic Church in Poland uh, helped the, the process to, of transfer of power and, and the coming back of democracy to be peaceful. Otherwise, it could have been... Uh, uh, very violent and uh, and possibly very disruptive, so so that was the contribution of the Catholic Church. But by the, by that time, uh, of course, uh, you know Pope John Paul II and uh, and the religion played an important role, and certainly his visit to Poland in 1979 started the the solidarity movement. But by then, lay Catholics were already in in charge, and certainly the workers and left-leaning intellectuals who were not Catholics, they were former Marxists or, or uh, who left the party, uh, were actually embraced by the church, uh, allowed to function within the church for various social activities. And you know, they were more instrumental by then in, uh, in bringing about the fall of the communist government. And of course, it was largely due to the fact that the Soviet Union was disintegrating. Without if the Soviet Union were there and wanted to intervene in Poland, uh, the communism or whatever form of government in Poland would still continue, whether there was the Pope or not. We have time for one more question. <coughs> uh, sir. Yeah, Mike Arocious. Um Are there Catholic seminaries in China, and are they controlled by the government? Um, yes and yes. They've also had, uh, the, the church here has tried to uh, bring some of them out and have exchanges in and, and, um, and, and Hong Kong as well. But uh, yes, they, there are government control seminaries. Well, I'd like to thank the panel uh, for their remarks, which were excellent and informative, um, and also for many of you, for several of you, for coming a distance, long distance. Uh, and I'd also like to thank all of you for joining us today and um, 
As I say, stay tuned. There will be more discussion on this. Thank you very much. Thank you.